It is always such a blessing when we can gather as a church family to celebrate communion. And it's also amazing to me and beautiful how clearly the message of communion comes out when we go from celebrating it into the scriptures that we find in our morning sermons. I mean, this is particularly easy to do when we're going through the book of Hebrews as each passage, each little piece of Hebrews practically shouts the name of Christ. It strikes me as we partake in communion and sing songs and all of these things, how amazing it is that we have Jesus Christ who we call Lord, we have Jesus Christ who we call brother, and we have Jesus Christ who we call friend, all straight from the passages of Scripture. There is no, there's nothing like it on, on this earth that would see a, a group of people who come to worship their God and yet also calling God the Son their, their friend and their brother. As we come to our passage this morning, we are going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be in verses 19 through to 25, so please feel free to turn there. We're going to read it here together. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through to verse 25. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May God apply his word to our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning at your bidding. We gather together to stir one another up to love and good works. We gather together to hold fast the confession of our hope. And we gather together particularly to draw near with this true heart full of assurance of faith that is placed in us by you, as you have replaced the heart of stone that we come with and replaced it with a heart of flesh that sees and knows you. And Lord, as we come, we ask that we would come in a way that you would be glorified, that we would come to know you in a greater and deeper way through your word, and Lord, we thank you so much 
for all of the ways that you care for us. Lord, we thank you for our children, the blessing that it is to have sons and daughters that join with us in our church. Let us not for one second take for granted the blessing that is a, a quiver full of children. And Lord, may we as a church continue to strengthen and encourage each other in the worship of you. God, we are incredibly blessed. We are blessed with a church family, a church building to gather in, and we are blessed to have a God who is worthy of all of our worship. We thank you for all of these things and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Found something cool back here. Are you hiding? <laughs> Go to mommy. <laughs> or not. This right here is one of Sherry's nightmares as far as being a pastor's wife who is sitting at the back without a second person to wrangle the three. But there is no part of me that is even a little bit annoyed or put off at the fact that I have three wonderful, beautiful children and an amazing wife who takes such great, good, great care of them. But back to our passage this morning. It's not hard to see how I would think that God's done an amazing job lining up our passage this morning with our celebration of the Lord's table. And this is something of a summary passage that winds up what our author has been saying until now regarding Christ's role as our high priest. And it also sets the stage and prepares us for another of Hebrews' warning passages in verses 26 to 31 that, Lord willing, we will get to next week. Our author starts our passage by identifying what he believes he's proved that the believer should have in Christ. Having confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and having a great high priest over the house of God. I think one of my favorite things here is that he so succinctly identifies the completed and the ongoing nature of Christ's work. The new and living way has been opened to Christ's people by the way of his flesh and blood. That has been accomplished. But at the same time, we have a great high priest as the sacrifice that brings both Propitiation and expiation, Jesus has finished his task. But as the priest who represents his people before the thrice holy God, Jesus' ministry still continues. 
By this work of Jesus, both complete and ongoing, we are not only allowed, but encouraged to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Back in chapter 4, verse 16, our author tells the people, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And he tells them to do this based on the fact that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And these things we've dealt with at length, getting to this point in Hebrews. Hence our author saying, since we have those, he's assuming that the point he has made is abundantly clear. And the bulk of our passage this morning deals not quite so much with orthodoxy, that is, right thinking or right belief, but orthopraxy, right practice. How, how does this play out? How does that look in the life of a believer? How then should we live? He says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we have certain responsibilities. He identifies three of them, which will direct the rest of our message this morning. Since these things are true, let us draw near. Since these things are true, let us hold fast. And since these things are true, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Recognize this morning that before we even get into the details of what our author is saying here, that all of these things are based solely on the accomplished and ongoing work of Christ. Without Christ, none of these things that he's commanding can happen. Our author has been grounding these Hebrew believers in the concept that there is actually and truly no other way that any of these things can happen or have any positive outcome. So first things first, since these things are true, let us draw near. Specifically, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Based on the accomplished and ongoing work of Christ, we may draw near to God and we are commanded to do so. We're given a similar command in James 4.8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Back in Psalm 73, Asaph says, But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Brothers and sisters, for us to draw near to God is our act of worshiping him. When we sing of Him, when we pray to Him, when we read His Scriptures, when we are just simply taking time to be quiet in His presence, all of these things constitute drawing near to Him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You and I, the original audience of this book, and every believer across all centuries, has this command, draw near to God. And often within church circles, there is a disagreement between brother and sister about, well, what is the best way to draw near to God? And God has wired us all differently. Some of us 
really feel that we can draw near to God by the, the music and the singing to Him. Some of us really feel that we can draw near to God through reading His Word or through prayer, and all of those things together accomplish this. But the reality is there is no best way to draw near to God. And the means by which we are drawing near to God is less important, though not unimportant, than the posture by which we approach Him. And a brief sidebar here, I want to acknowledge that that is particular to the Christian life as a whole. Um, For all life can be lived to the glory of God as an act of worship to Him. But within our gathered church services, uh, we recognize something called the regulative principle of worship that God has given us specific instructions as to how He wants to be worshipped in the gathered congregation. This holds that we worship God in the manner He has commanded us to worship Him in His Word. And typically, that includes the elements of the reading of Scripture, preaching, prayer, sung praise, the administration of the sacraments, and the bringing of oaths. But whether we are worshiping as God has commanded in His gathered worship, or whether we are worshiping via the Christian life lived totally to God, we are given criteria in our passage as to how it is to be done. It is to be with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. To come with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Romans 10.9 has always been a favorite verse of mine. If you confess with your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. Another one from 1 Samuel 16. Samuel is judging Jesse's sons. And he's looking for Saul's replacement as king. And one of Jesse's sons comes and Samuel goes, well, it must be this one. Look at him. And God says, the Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. There is great emphasis within Scripture upon the condition of one's heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus even takes some of these sins that are found in the Ten Commandments, these commands, and He expands them to include sins of the heart. Examples being hatred and lust to be equivalent to murder and adultery. When we come before our God, entering the most holy place by the blood of Jesus and by the ministry of our great high priest, we must do so keenly aware of the condition of our hearts. No amount of lip service or good faith actions or our Sunday best can substitute for a heart that is sincerely committed to Christ as Lord and Savior. 
a heart that has placed full and total trust in our Lord. The second part of this command is that we draw near with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We covered the cleansing of our consciences in detail last week. We were reminded that in Christ we can have a purified and perfected conscience. We can know that our sins, everyone, past, present, and future, was finally dealt with upon the cross of Christ. One passage that comes to mind for me on that this morning is from Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. We draw near in faith We draw near with purified consciences, and we draw near with bodies washed with pure water. There is a double imagery here that would not have been lost on these Hebrew Christians. Remembering that this original audience are converts to Christianity from the Jewish faith. So they are people of two worlds. And when he's talking about bodies washed with pure water, from their history, the first thing that would have come to mind is the images of the priest cleansing himself before entering the holy place. Or maybe it would be the ritual washings that were associated with the Jewish faith. But then, these are not Jewish believers. These are Jewish Christians. And as such the second, clearer, and more recent image for them would be the cleansing of the waters of baptism. Not to put too fine a point on this, but it was assumed, and it still should be, that if you are a committed follower of Christ, you will have been baptized. The idea of an unbaptized Christian was a foreign one. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, that's fallen from view to some extent. Baptism is the immersion of the believer in water whereby he obeys the command of Christ and sets forth his identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. To quote theologian F.F. Bruce, Christian baptism consists not merely in the outward application of water, but in the outward application of water as the visible sign of the inward and spiritual cleansing wrought by God in those who come to him through Christ. There's a reason why Peter says in Acts 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Mark 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Paul in Colossians 2, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. If you are a Christian here this morning and have not been baptized, get baptized. It is a command of Christ and it is a part of following his example. And there are innumerable reasons that I've heard that people give why they haven't been baptized. And perhaps the one I might accept is that there are children who have made some manner of a profession of faith, but it is not identifiable outside of just parroting what their parents believe. Young children that say, well, my parents believe in Jesus, so sure, I do too. That might be the one excuse for putting off baptism until we can know that there is a real and true and vital faith there. But if you are old enough and firm enough in mind to make a reasoned confession of faith, one that is based on the gospel, not just on emotion, not on what your parents have told you to do, then get baptized. I do think that part of this is a swing of the pendulum away from the Roman Catholic paedo-baptism that requires nothing of the subject and somehow confers salvation among it. And I think we've kind of swung the other way where we have fenced baptism with all manner of roadblocks, both from a church perspective and from a personal perspective. Well, I can't get baptized because X, Y, Z. Baptism is foundational to the life of the Christian. If you can come to me and articulate that you understand the gospel and you have believed it, then you should be baptized and tell the world what it is that you have committed to. Christians ought to draw near with bodies washed with pure water. So we are to draw near in worship. Then we are to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. In some manner, the second point is evidence of the first. If we have truly drawn near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, then we will ultimately hold fast our confession of our hope. But the ultimate holding fast is one thing, but there's also this challenge to do so daily and without wavering. And being totally honest, every single one of us, myself included, waver in our devotion to the things of God. Our practice of daily and constantly drawing near to Him waxes and wanes. There's a reason why there's so many forgotten Bible reading plans in February and March. But our devotion to, to our God and the things of our God shouldn't wax and wane. It's not saying that if it does, we are outside of the flock. It is a call for us to grow in our commitment to the faith. If you are in Christ, then you have been finally justified once and for all because of the accomplishments of Christ but you are still being sanctified. 
And just like the runner in a marathon whose pace rises and falls, we have to do our best to remain and maintain the pace. Getting up and dusting ourselves off if we fall and persevering unto the end of the race. Our sanctification is growing. We are being made more like Christ every day. And we can hold fast, immovable in the confession of our hope, for he who is promised is faithful. Another piece to our passage is that it has to do with our public life. Drawing near to God often is more of a private endeavor. As us meeting here this morning attests, it's not always a private endeavor, but the confession of our hope, such as the confessions we make before the church in baptism, requires us to do so publicly. It would not make sense to me if I came to your place of work and asked about you. If your coworkers, the people that you work with regularly, day in and day out, weren't able to identify you as a Christian. If I were to drop in on some of your closest friends, people that you know well, they should be able to tell me that you are a believer. Turning this on myself, I think about how few people could get away from an interaction with me without knowing that I'm a father to three beautiful kids. How many people could get away from an interaction with me without knowing that I'm the husband of an amazing wife or that I am a lover of the outdoors or take all of the things that you know about me? I, I like to talk about the things I'm passionate about. But being honest, how many people have reasonable excuse to be uncertain about where I stand on my faith? Honestly, I have it a little bit easier than most because when I say, well, what do you do for work? I, that kind of outs me. I, I am a Christian. But besides that, does what I talk about and how I talk about it and the way I carry myself demonstrate a fast grip on my confession of my hope. And looking at your own life, the way you interact with your friends and your coworkers, and particularly the people outside of this church that, I mean, we all can generally assume we're kind of on at least somewhat the same page sitting here. But when we meet with our friends and coworkers outside of this place, they should know who you are. Not just the old quote by St. Francis of Assisi that isn't necessarily St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Garbage. Preach the gospel at all times. Period. With your life and with words. We have to confess our hope be ready to give an answer and defend our hope. And finally, we are to consider how to stir one another to love and good works. If these benchmarks of the past two commands seem lofty and too substantial to shoulder on our own, then all is as it should be. 
we know that all of these things are to be accomplished in the strength provided by Christ. But if we are wavering in our hope or confession, if the assurance of our faith is shaking, then it's hard for us to call upon Christ and the strength that he provides. But praise God, we have a Savior who lived on this earth, lived as a man, knows what we are like and what we need, and he has given us a source of earthly encouragement, that is, the church. All of us are going to waver in our faith. All of us are going to momentarily loosen our grip on the confession, avoid saying something about what we believe when we have an opportunity to do so, all of those kind of things. None of us are perfect Christians. And sometimes we are going to struggle to reach out and take hold of the promises given to us by Christ. But if we are a committed part of our church, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest, we are to draw near and hold fast. Each one of us is called to this. And each one of us is simultaneously called to help one another in seeing these come to pass. That is why to separate ourselves from the church attending exclusively online, I understand that there's those of us who attend online because we medically or physically can't get here. There are those in countries around the world that attend online because they have no access to a local body of believers. And for those, we should pray that God would rally believers around them that they can meet together in person. But if we are attending exclusively online, if we're relying only on our personal devotions or internet preachers, or even if we are attending church on Sundays and we are the last ones in here and the first ones out the door and your engagement with the church body is limited to me up on stage talking to you. That serves only to leave you with an impoverished faith. The Christian life is not one meant to be lived in isolation. We cannot do it alone. That's why baptism and the Lord's Supper, the New Testament ordinances of the church, given by Christ for the good of the church and his glory, cannot rightly be done in seclusion. You cannot get baptized on your own, just you and some guy in a river somewhere. That is a function of the church. You cannot take Lord's, like the Lord's table alone at home with your grape juice and a cracker and call that communion. We gather together to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We gather together to witness the testimony of people who are baptized and to make commitments along with it. When a believer makes an oath in baptism, when a believing family comes and makes an oath in the dedication of their children to follow Christ with their whole life or to raise their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, the church then responds in promising to supplement and encourage and in whatever way possible assure that person 
in the fulfillment of their oath. You show me a solid, God-honoring believer who lives their lives and practices their faith in isolation from a local church body, and I will show you at least one of three things, maybe all of them. A believer who is not as solid as they seem. A believer whose faith could be so much more solid if exercised in the context of a local church. And a believer who is ready for a catastrophic fall from faith due to lack of support in the local church. We are not designed to have faith in isolation. Because there are days where I need my brothers and my sisters here at this church to call me to be better. There are days where I need my brothers and sisters here in this church to encourage my faith because I, I don't know where to turn. And there are days for you where you are going to need the church and if you are doing church from home or you are only here for the allotted sermon time on Sunday, then you don't have those relationships built that you can rely on and pull upon that God has designed you to be able to pull upon when you are feeling weak. In light of the completed and ongoing work of Christ, we are commanded to be drawing near, holding fast, and stirring up one another to love and good works in the context of the local church. Those are non-optional activities for the believer. Our author has given the how-tos for these in our passage this morning, and God in his wisdom has entwined each of these things that they cannot rightly be practiced in isolation from each other. You cannot claim to be drawing near to God without holding fast your confession. You cannot claim to be holding fast your confession and not be engaged in stirring up your fellow believers to love and good works. And how can you claim to be stirring up fellow believers if you have not drawn near in worship yourself? So continue in these things, brothers and sisters. I, I have to go to my knees and to praise God that I minister to in and alongside a congregation where I see these things active week in and week out. And if any here this morning or online have not trusted Christ, if you do not know personally what it means to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and your body washed with pure water, then know that that only happens by the blood of Jesus and through him as our great high priest. Confess your need of him and believe in your heart that upon Calvary's cross your sins have been dealt with and that Christ was raised from the dead. Repent and turn from your sin and be baptized. For the day is drawing near, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Some will confess this to their salvation, for they have already trusted in him as their Savior. And some will confess it to their damnation, for they have already rejected him. There is no two ways. When it comes time that you are proven right or wrong, there is no take-backs. 
our worship team comes to bring a closing song, I ask that you would meditate upon these things. Assessing in your own hearts where God by His Spirit and by His Word may be revealing from the how-tos that our passage has this morning, revealing how we might grow in faith and better glorify Him. Would you pray with me as the worship team comes? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we have no righteousness outside of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. But Lord, in Him we have all the righteousness of heaven. Lord, you have not left us astray trying to figure out how it is that we might worship you, but you have given us step-by-step directions in your word. And we pray that we would worship you in a way that is pleasing to you. That we would live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. And that when our brother or our sister stumbles, that they might have a body of believers there to pick them up and continue to call them to hold the pace. And Lord, that we as believers would not forsake our duty in stirring one another up. That we might reach out to those who we do not know. That we might reach out to those who slip in and slip out on Sunday mornings and draw them into the, the congregation. Lord, that each one of us might have a peace by your grace and by your sovereign will in encouraging each other to hold fast and persevere in the faith unto the end. And Lord, as we draw near and hold fast and stir one another up, we ask that you would do these things in our lives for we cannot do them on our own. Work in this congregation by your Holy Spirit that we might see these as fruits of what you are doing, that we might glorify you all the more. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.